Well, we're in a sermon series on the book of Acts right now, and I'm excited about this series for a lot of reasons, but one of the biggest reasons I'm excited about it is how this book brings us back to the starting point of Christianity, the clarity of the gospel, and what it actually means to be a Christian. In other words, we have a chance to refocus on the foundations of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and what he's now called us to do in these last days. Because I hope you realize, friends, time has not been helpful on any of these issues. Through the centuries, the message of the gospel has gotten muddled in the midst of a self-help culture. The person of Jesus Christ has gotten sidelined in the midst of a pluralistic society that says, sure, Jesus, but just stack him up along with all the other gods and goddesses and ways to get right with God. And the purpose of the church so often has gotten lost in the midst of programs and glossy brochures and jazzercise and blood drives and everything in the world. You would not believe how often I'm contacted to get going with something else at our church Besides the gospel, it can get lost. It has gotten lost. And so we have a chance to refocus on critical things as we live in these last days. So we're going to dig into the first sermon that was ever preached after the church was launched. And I want you to listen as I read it. Because I want you to notice of everything that the apostle Peter could have talked about. What he chooses to highlight and bring back into focus for us. Go to Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 22. Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands have crucified and put to death whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it now he's going to quote from Psalm 16 For David says concerning him, Jesus, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence men and brethren let me speak now here's what he's about to do he just quoted from the old testament and now he says let me give some commentary on this let me interpret this rightly for you in a way that you've probably never thought before but you should begin to think this way forevermore men and brethren let me speak freely to you of the patriarch david that he is both dead and buried And his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning 
the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out on us this which you now see and hear. Now he's going to quote from another psalm, Psalm 10. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So of everything Peter could have talked about in this first sermon, what does he choose to focus on? Well, here's the first thing I want you to see. Number one, he wants you to see who Jesus really is. He doesn't promote the church. He doesn't give us a list of do's and don'ts. He brings it back to Jesus and walks them through the life and death of resurrection of Jesus. Because listen, folks, it doesn't take long at all and people become fuzzy again on who Jesus really was, why he came, what he did. It's not that we are so many centuries removed from it that there's confusion. There was confusion immediately with people still saying, well, what about him? I think he was a good teacher. I think this, I think that. Peter knows he's got to clarify again who Jesus really is. And that's why right out of the box in verse 22, he wants you to know this first thing. The life of Jesus was endorsed by God to prove that he is more than a man. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. That word attested, is a Greek word that means to point out something or demonstrate something as having having been accredited and approved. In other words, the miracles and wonders were God's certification of Jesus as being who he claimed to be. They were God's endorsement or seal of approval on his son so that you don't need to wonder what God thinks about his son. In fact, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, God bellows from the heavens audibly. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to 
him. So if that's what God thinks about Jesus, here's what I want you to think about. The test of whether or not you are anti-God. See, we still live in a day, and I appreciate it, we still live in a day, regardless of what the media tries to, tries to help us think about, very small percentage of people, folks, are atheists. Why? Because we're created in God's image and your very soul screams, there's got to be a God, there's got to be more, there's got, it doesn't matter how much they write, how much they pontificate, they won't get it out of human beings that we believe there's more, we believe there's more. So we still got a lot of people that say, oh, I believe in God. Let me help you here. The test, the test of whether or not you are anti-God is not that you say you believe in God. The book of James says the demons believe in God and tremble. The test of whether or not you are anti-God is whether or not you embrace his son. See, we we can't still have people saying, oh, I believe in God, I'm just not sure who Jesus is. God endorsed his son fully. Listen to him. Listen to him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. These two things go together, God and Jesus. So if you say you believe in God and you reject God's endorsement of Jesus, you not only do not know God, You are anti-God because he is hugely pro-Jesus. Jesus. 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 And I know, folks, I know this flies in the face of our pluralistic society today that just screams incessantly, no one should claim exclusivity as to knowing God or being the only way to God. But Jesus did and God endorsed him. Mic drop. I don't know about you folks, I want to be on the same side as God on this issue. Our culture just continues to say there's many ways to God. God endorsed one, his son, his son, his son. But look where Peter goes next. He says the death of Jesus was determined by God, by God. As a part of God's sovereign plan. It was no accident. It was no afterthought. Things didn't get out of hand. Jesus was not confused. Whenever they do make a movie about Jesus, they tend to show him as befuddled and effeminate and wandering through Palestine, not sure who he was. Shut up. He knew exactly who he was, and they knew exactly what he was saying. That's why they constantly tried to lay hands on him and throw him off a cliff or stone him, because he kept saying, I and the Father are one. I do what I see my father do. He claimed to be God. And that's why they killed him. Don't say Jesus never claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. And God endorsed him. So his death was no accident. It was determined by God as a part of God's sovereign plan. Look at verse 23 again. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. That verse is loaded up with intentional, powerful, 
God-glorifying words that show our God is absolutely sovereign and in control of what happened on the cross while people who make real choices created in his image are still responsible for what they do. You see how I bumped those two things right together, these two doctrinal truths? God is sovereign, and people are not puppets. This is not fatalism. People make real, free, volitional choices, and yet God, God, even with wicked, sinful, evil acts, can still work his purpose, his plan through all of history. That's one of the wow factors of our God. It's not either or. Well, God's either, either God is sovereign and people are puppets or people make real choices and because they do, God never knows what's gonna happen next. The Bible doesn't teach that and that's not who our God is. He's sovereign over all things, including evil and wicked while not being the author of it. That's the world we live in. That's what you see not just in the book of Acts, but all through the Bible. Yes, God is sovereign, and yet people make real choices that they are responsible for and will be accountable for. So nobody gets off the hook because of the sovereignty of God. Well, God's sovereign. I had to do that. And nobody screws up God's plan by their choices. God's not. I hope you realize, as bad as things are, God is not on plan C or D. The cherubim aren't saying, what happened to plan A? It's like, I had to shuck that all together. Do you see how wicked things have gotten? I didn't see that coming at all. Woo, look at that world leader. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I had to shift. Our God is on plan A, working his purposes in all of history. That's what you see in the scriptures And you say, well, what's the effect of this doctrine? Well, here's what I want you to understand. It's the same thing you see in Acts chapter 4. So we get it right here in Acts 2.23, but you see it again in Acts chapter 4 when the early Christians were being persecuted. It didn't take long at all before they were being told, just like our day tells us. But folks, if you think it's hard today, their day was saying, do not speak in the name of Jesus. Do not preach this exclusivity. And if you do, we're going to beat you with rods and we're going to put you in prison. That day may be coming in America, but it's not today, folks. You may be marginalized, you may be mocked, you may be scoffed at, you may be shunned. But this is not new. Their day, it was no more popular to speak of exclusivity in one person being the way than it is today. And so quickly they were told, do not preach this message of salvation in Jesus' name alone. But here's the effect that had on them. They didn't sit around feeling sorry for themselves, saying, oh my goodness, I thought the king's kids go first class. I thought if we preached this message and obeyed him, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. Why isn't he protecting us and making sure that nothing bad happens to us? God's not a good God. They didn't do that. Because they understood the sovereignty of God. They understood that God is sovereign even over what wicked people do to us and they saw the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as the ultimate example of God being sovereign and wicked people doing horrible things so that's why after they were released and commanded to not speak anymore in this name when they gathered together as a church with other brothers and sisters for a prayer meeting here's how they prayed listen to Matt, to Acts 4 27 to 29 
they cried out to God in a prayer meeting and said, for truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Real people did real evil against Jesus. Watch what he says next. They were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose had determined when? Say it again. Before to be done. Does that mean these people are not responsible? Oh, no, it doesn't. And you don't have verse 29 because I decided to add it in the bedroom yesterday as I preached this to the furniture. But it's good. Verse 29 says this because I want you to see the effect of this. Doctrine was never meant to just lie there in a dusty kind of way and say, well, that's a cool doctrine, but that doesn't affect my life. Here's the effect that this doctrine of God being sovereign even over what wicked people do against us had on them. Listen to verse 29. Now, Lord... Look on their threats. They're telling us, don't you dare speak in Jesus' name again or this is going to happen to you and this is going to... Look on their threats and grant your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word. They understood Jesus was God's beloved son and God did not protect him from all evil and he served the purposes of God. We're going to serve the purposes of God even as evil comes our way because God is in control. So it gave them courage and boldness to know nothing just comes into my life randomly. God's on his throne. And we are his people. And so we will keep speaking. We'll keep speaking the name of Jesus. Preaching this good news of Jesus Christ. Even Jesus himself, folks, knew that his death and resurrection was the ultimate purpose for which he'd come into this world. Not healing people, not feeding multitudes. Death and resurrection was his ultimate purpose and mission. Everything else was just a prelude leading up to this moment. That's why in John 12, you ever notice how as you go through the Gospels, Jesus often would say, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. What hour? He considered those final hours from the Garden of Gethsemane where he wrestled and sweat drops of blood knowing what he was about to do to the cross, to the resurrection, to his exaltation as being the hour, the reason he came, the very mission and purpose for why he was on this earth. So that's why in John 12 he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, he was fully God and fully man. So listen to his honesty next. As a human being, he recoiled from what he knew was about to happen to him, what he would suffer, what he would experience at the hands of wicked people. So he said, now my soul is troubled. That word troubled means agitated, anxious, filled with horror. Now my soul is troubled at the very thought of this final hour, yet I know it's why I came. So he says, Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus was never more glorified than when he suffered on the cross for sinners. That's when he was most glorified. That's when God was most glorified. 
Then a voice came from heaven, it says in John 12, saying, I have both glorified your name and I will glorify it again. And then Jesus says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. He wasn't talking about his exaltation through the clouds. He was talking about being lifted up on a cross. You say, Brad, how do you know? Because the next sentence says, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples. This is not a universalism verse that everyone's gonna get saved anyway. Good news. All peoples means people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, men, women, black, white, poor, rich, educated, uneducated, broken background, not so broken. People, all people, all people, all people. There's no exclusion. There's no fine print. There's no addendum. There's no little clause that excludes somebody. What good news. I'll draw all peoples, all kinds of people to myself. Jesus came to die. But his death would mean absolutely nothing if he did not rise from the dead. And so that's where Peter goes next. He says the resurrection of Jesus was accomplished by God to conquer our fear of death, which has an ultimate penalty. Death is the penalty for sin. Those two things go together. God never originally designed or intended for people to die. We're created in his image. Sin is what has done that. And so sin and death go together and the resurrection conquers our greatest fear, death, which is the ultimate penalty for sin. And that was conquered by the resurrection. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, there would be no forgiveness of sin and there would still be great fear of death. Look what Peter says in verse 24. Whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death. Oh, I love this next phrase. Because it was not possible that he should be held by it. We live in a day where skeptics love to scoff and say, that's not possible. The resurrection is not possible. Stop talking. I was listening until this point, and now you've mentioned the resurrection. That's not possible. I'll tell you, God says, I'll tell you what's not possible. It's not possible for Jesus to be held by death, held down by death, because he's the author of life. It's not possible that he should be held by death. The very one who spoke life into this world, the very one who has power, was raised from the dead. That's what Jesus said in John 10. Nobody takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. He is the author of life who conquered death. It's not possible. It's not possible. It's not possible. So banish forevermore, folks, that it's okay to say, I'm all on board with tons of stuff about Christianity, except the resurrection. I don't want to offend you. Well, I really don't care. <laughs> Paul would say to you, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. You're an ignoramus. The resurrection is never optional to Christianity. It is essential. If the resurrection didn't happen, don't walk 
run from Christianity. Run and don't look back. It's meaningless. The entire thing crumbles and collapses because the resurrection of Jesus is the final endorsement proving he is the son of God who conquered death and the ultimate penalty for sin. That's why the Apostle Paul in his great book of Romans opens it in Romans 1-4 by saying Jesus was declared to be the son of God by healing people. No. By feeding people. No. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Peter wants you to see who Jesus really is. But secondly, I want you to see something else. Right out of the box, first sermon, Peter gives them a Bible study and shows them, whoa, a new, wow, I've been here 23 years and that's never happened and it happened just a few weeks ago and now again. I know, and my friend here, I'm getting old. We're gonna have to have a little fence here. As he toddles forward, I used to be able to stand here and it all worked out. Stay back. Oh man, you gotta change things as you get older. I hate that. What was I saying? Can you help me? Oh, Peter gives them a Bible study and says, new way to read your Bible. Oh, you haven't been reading it right. You should have already always been reading it this way, but I know you weren't. I want to show you how to read your Bible, all of it, including the Old Testament. So he wants you to see what the Bible is all about. And what he basically says is it's all about, anybody have a guess? Jesus! He says, you ought to read your Bible through the lens of Jesus, Old Testament and New Testament. And so what he does is he grabs a chunk of Psalm 16 and a chunk of Psalm 10, and he walks them through saying, oh my goodness, these two Psalms were not talking about King David. They were talking about King Jesus Psalm 16 was taught about the resurrection of King Jesus. And Psalm 10 was taught about the exaltation of King Jesus. Because King David is dead. And we know where his tomb is. Now, here's the question. Where did Peter learn how to read his Bible like this? Jesus himself taught them this. Oh, every year as I read through the Bible, I've got favorite places where I say, Oh, I wish I could have been there for that. And Luke 24 is one of them. You remember after the resurrection, there was that account in Luke 24 where a few disciples are walking to Emmaus and they are downcast. They are super sad. And Jesus comes alongside them. They don't recognize him. He says, hey, why so sad, guys? And they were actually kind of rude. They said, dude, are you the only one in all of Jerusalem that doesn't know what just happened? Get a grip. It's really gracious he didn't just go... He didn't. He said, what? And they said, oh my goodness, we had thought Jesus was the promised one. We had thought he was the one we've been praying for and waiting for. We had thought he was the one the scriptures were talking about. But they killed him. And it says in Luke 24, here's what he began to do. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses, 
When they said Moses, they were referring to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Beginning at Moses, because Moses wrote them, and all the prophets. He reached back to the very beginning of the Old Testament. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Oh, I would have loved to have been there. Ooh, that word expound means to explain, to make sense of, and to assign meaning to. He began to, he didn't teach them any new verses. He began to take verses and passages they already knew and assign new meaning to it and say, you missed it. This was actually talking about me. This was pointing to me. This was about me. Me, me, don't get lost in the Old Testament sacrificial system. I hear Christians sometimes, well-meaning, say, oh, there was two ways to get saved. The Old Testament was all about works. You had to do these sacrifices and work for salvation. Then the New Testament after Jesus is grace. Stop saying that if that's you. You don't understand the scriptures. No one has ever been saved any different way but through grace. The Old Testament was always looking forward By faith, by faith, believing the promises. All this was just temporary. All this was an echo. All this was a shadow. So the other thing, I may offend some of you, but I feel bad for some of you Christians. Like You're still stuck in the Old Testament. Oh, I want to do all the feasts, and oh, we're going to do the bread, and oh, we're going to... Get over it. It's like saying, oh, I want to go back to an echo. Oh, I want to go to the shadow. Jesus is the brilliant HD color of that shadow. Jesus is the symphony of that echo. I'm not going back to the echo or the shadow. Live with HD symphony Jesus. Oh, I love to read my Old Testament. Don't hear me saying I don't go there, but I read it seeing Jesus, knowing this all points to Jesus, 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 Jesus. And he taught us to read it that way. Later in that same day, he says in Luke 24, 44, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Just yesterday in my Bible reading, I read through the Bible every year, I was supposed to read Psalm 69. And that Psalm is talking about Jesus Jesus, read all the Bible through the lens of Jesus. Peter wanted them to understand who Jesus really is. Peter wanted them to understand what the Bible is actually all about and how to read it properly. But he didn't end his sermon without pressing on us a response. A response. A response to all this. Who Jesus is, what the Bible's all about. How are you going to respond to that? Number three, he says, he wants you to see what you really need most. And that is to be saved. Oh, there's so many things we think we need. We think we need bigger, better cars and bigger houses and longer vacations and more stuff and maybe some straightening out of earthly relationships. And don't hear me saying there's no place for some of that. But my friend, that's not your greatest need. Peter boils it down and brings it back to our one great need that is universal of all human beings from birth. We need to be saved. We arrive 
not in right relationship with God. And no one has to teach you to be a sinner. You are a sinner. And it begins to manifest itself quickly. We need to be saved. We need to be saved. Look at verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Now before I unpack a little more from you, for you what he's commanding them to do, I wanna help you understand what makes our generation so perverse? When you hear that word perverse, I don't know what you think of, but it's actually a Greek word that means twisted, dishonest, evasive. What about our generation is most dishonest and evasive? Well, I hope you realize it's not all the horrific ways we sin against each other. Don't hear me saying that's not horrible. But folks, that's been going on as long as there have been people who've been alive on this earth. What makes our generation so perverse, I believe? If the definition of perversion is dishonest and evasive, I think the most perverse thing about our generation is the way they've twisted the truth of salvation and Jesus alone and in the name of tolerance and inclusivity have drummed into us that there are many ways to God. You just choose the one that works best for you. And something you'll hear a lot is even as I try to share the gospel and the good news and Jesus and what God has done for us in Jesus, people are gracious. I rarely run into someone obnoxious and hostile, but they'll say, well, I'm glad that's true for you. It's just not true for me. And they don't think there's anything odd about that. But there is. There's something really odd about that. It's either true or it's not, folks. Peter says, be saved from this perverse generation. Here's what's also worth noting about that. Be saved. In the original language, in the Greek, it is a passive imperative. An imperative is a command. Passive means you can't do it. It has to be done for you. Someone outside of you has to act upon you. What? Why would Peter command them to do something they cannot do themselves? Be saved. I'll tell you why. Because he wants to back them, just like we today need to be backed, into a spiritual corner of helplessness and hopelessness so that you'll cry out to the only one who can save you, Jesus. Be saved. It's a command. You gotta gotta have this salvation, but you can't do it. See, one of the biggest problems, folks, you say, why would he do that? Because one of our biggest problems is not that we think we can't. It's that we think we can save ourselves. We think we can. We think we can. We think we can. But now don't hear what he's not saying. The fact that you cannot save yourself doesn't mean there's nothing for you to do now. See, once he says and clarifies who Jesus really is and then tells us what the Bible's really all about and how to read it, in verse 36 is the word therefore. And he turns our attention now towards what you must do if you're ever gonna be saved. So what does he tell us to do? Here's the first thing he says. You need to think 
carefully about who Jesus is. For yourself, not somebody else, for yourself. You need to think carefully about who Jesus is. Look at it in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter is commanding us to think, to think carefully about who Jesus is. That's why the ESV translation right there in verse 36 says, therefore, know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. In other words, it is possible to move past doubt into something that you can know for certain, but you're gonna have to think hard enough and long enough to get there. And I hope that doesn't offend you. That is something that I believe sets Christianity apart from so many other religions. Christianity never tries to do an end run around our mind. Christianity never says, oh, you just gotta stop thinking. Oh, oh, you can't think about this. If you start thinking about it, well, it won't make sense. Even sometimes I think parents, I hope this isn't you, just say to their kids or other people, oh, I don't know, you just gotta believe. You just believe, you just gotta believe. Please stop representing us. It's like, yes, do you have to believe? But we believe in something. There's fact, there's substance, there's evidence. That's what makes Christianity different than so many other religions. We do not say, oh, don't think about it. It'll make no sense. You just gotta feel it. Do you feel it? I think I feel it. Yeah. I hope I'll feel it more. Okay, here we go. Christianity is a thinking religion because it's based on truth. There is evidence for who Jesus is, who he claimed to be, and the resurrection. Peter doesn't say, you just gotta feel it, folks. Do you feel it? He says, let all Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. It is this emphasis on the mind that I believe gives Christianity a distinct advantage over every other religion. You find the coins that the Bible mentions. You dig up the cities that the Bible mentions. You see Bible characters and historical people that get mentioned, also mentioned in secular sources outside of the Bible. There is a credibility to Christianity that is unlike any other religion. Because it happened. Now here's why I'm pressing this. Because we live in a day where as I talk to people about spiritual matters... So often, folks, it's not exceptional. It's more the norm. So often, people, people have some form of spirituality that they have embraced that is based on preference and feeling and nothing else. There's no basis or substance at all for it. I was on a flight recently heading down to, uh, to Florida for my son Harrison's wedding, and I got bumped to first class. Yeah, so I'm in the big seat getting free drinks and better food and the little washcloth for your brow. <laughs> and so I strike up a conversation with the guy next to me and in a hurry, I liked him. Oh my goodness, he was gracious, he was warm, he was intelligent, it became evident real quick, he's intelligent, he, he's always in first class, I just got bumped. So he's intelligent, he's articulate, and he's very successful in what he does. That's why he's in first class. And they're flying him all over to do what he does. But as I turned it to spiritual matters, 
he began to say to me, here's what his hope was. He's like, oh, I just could not make any significant character changes in my life. I thought that was interesting. Those are his exact words. He said it three times. I just couldn't make any significant character changes in my own life. And I didn't want to say, what? What have you done? Who am I sitting next to? I just let it go. Because I was actually encouraged. He saw the need to change. He said, no matter what I did, I couldn't make any significant character changes in his life. So now, he was very jazzed. I listened while he explained this a lot. Now he has embraced some form of, it's a power he has within that all of us now are going to be reincarnated multiple times and come back into the world as a better person because you learned from your first life. I said, even Hitler, like he's here now, is a better person? Yep. Wow. So here's all I did. You don't have to be disrespectful. You don't have to say, that is so stupid. Like, how? I didn't, I was nice. But here's, here's all you have to do. Ask questions about the basis or authority or framework or hope or how did you conclude this? How did you come to, and every time I would ask a question about the basis or framework or foundation or authority, how did you get here? He would say, I don't know. I don't have all the details. I don't know. I can't explain it. Folks, that's not what Peter is doing. He says, think, examine, reason, dig into the claims of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, the claims of scriptures. You gotta think, think. Because here's, here's what's at stake, folks. You'll never have certainty and security in your life until you have certainty about who Jesus is. Staying fuzzy about who Jesus is means you will stay fuzzy about where you're headed and how you think you're gonna get there. Those two things go hand in hand. You gotta know who Jesus is, what he's done. But let me show you what Peter presses on them next. He says, you need to recognize personally what your sin did to Jesus. See, even though Christianity is a thinking religion, don't make this mistake. It's not simply cerebral. It's all about facts. As long as you know some facts about Jesus, you're good to go. Oh, no, 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 no. Right here is what moves your Christianity and your consideration, your consideration of Jesus out of the realm of sterile academic musing into personal and painful conviction. Look at what happened to the crowd in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What is this? What did they hear that cut them to the heart? Oh, folks, it was three words in verse 36. Whom you crucified. Those three words fell on them like a surgeon's knife and laid them bare. Because Peter doesn't want you or them simply musing about the crucifixion in a detached, sterile way as yourself being a spectator of what somebody did to Jesus. He draws them into the horror of the crucifixion and says, whom you crucified, you did this to Jesus. And it cut them to the heart. Now also don't make a mistake, this verse sometimes has been used to promote anti-Semitism. He was not saying, 
you Jews killed Jesus. Folks, it's a crowd of thousands of people from thousands of different cities and dozens of nations who have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. So he knows the majority of the people in this crowd were not a part of the angry mob 50 days earlier who'd cried out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And yet he holds every one of them personally responsible and says, whom you crucified. That's what cut them to the heart because they saw their own sin for what it was and what it did to Christ. Your sin put him on. He was on the cross for your sin. It's personal. Your sin was on Jesus. Oh, listen to me. When you're gripped with the truth of who Jesus is and what he did for you, personally on the cross, that truth will cut you and lay you bare as it exalts Jesus and exposes you as a sinner in desperate need of a savior. I'm gonna say something hard, but it's in the hopes of helping some of you that I believe are still on your way to hell. Did you know you can go to hell from church? You can arrive there from church. So listen to me carefully. Simply knowing the facts of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross will not save you. Some of you desperately need to hear that and it's the explanation for why your life is where it is. Oh, knowing who Jesus is and what he did on the cross might inform you, but it will not transform you, my friend, until that truth cuts you on a heart level and strips away all of your self-righteousness that's getting in the way of God saving you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. And what brings you down to nothing, my friends, is the scalpel of God's Truth that peels away everything else and lays you bare so that you say, oh, he did that for me. I am a sinner in need of a savior. I could never save myself. There is no hope for me apart from him. Sin stops being an abstract, generic concept where you say, I know there's sin, and I know there's sinners out there somewhere. And you say, oh, I am a sinner, and my sin did that to Jesus, whom you crucified. See, this spiritual cutting, my friends, is critical because it is what It's the difference between being religious with a set of facts about Jesus and being a Christian who has been cut on a heart level. I know it's painful, I know, because here's what happens with the gospel. Two things, and they're packed together in the gospel. The gospel and Jesus' death on the cross tells me that I'm far worse than I could ever have imagined because my sin did that to him. But it also tells me I'm far more loved than I could ever imagine because he willingly did that for me while I was still 
far from God, a rebel, an enemy. I'm worse than I could ever imagine. I'm more loved than I could ever imagine. But some of you just have the love part and it's never gripped you that you're a sinner. News alert, until you see yourself as a horrible sinner, you're not a candidate for the Savior. Jesus said, I came to save sinners. I didn't come to help people who already think they're pretty good. And sometimes the hardest thing and the last thing to be peeled away from us is not heinous sin, our own high thoughts of ourselves and how we're a little better than those awful people out there in the world. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness dies the hardest. But the scalpel of God's Truth wants to peel that away and has to peel that away too, my friends, until you're able to be laid bare and cry out for a savior. Mercy, mercy, mercy. You gotta be certain who Jesus is. And it needs to cut you on a heart level where it's personal. And then and only then can you do his final command. Verse 38. He says, you need to repent. But it's an informed repentance. You gotta know who Jesus is and who you are so that you can repent. Then Peter said to them, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the mission of sins. I don't have time, but please don't make a mistake right there with that verse. That verse is not teaching, oh, repentance and baptism together saves you. There's a denomination called the Church of Christ. Some of you may have grown up in it. It's big in our area. That has made that huge mistake. Sometimes they have that verse printed on the side of their building. Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized. And they believe, that's why they keep water in the tanks day and night, that unless you have been baptized, you will go to hell. You must repent and be baptized. Folks, all the way through the book of Acts, we're going to see repentance repeatedly preached and never again is baptism mentioned in conjunction with it. I've got some answers for that that I could explain, but I don't have time. Whenever there's a verse that seems to be like, hmm, what is going on there? Here's the rule of thumb. Let other verses that speak on the same subject guide you to interpret the harder one that stands out as an exception. The Bible does not teach that baptism saves you, but it talks a lot about repentance. So what is that? Not a word we use a lot. It's far more than being sorry, folks. Repentance is the Greek word metanoia. Meta is a word that means change. Noia is a word that means mind. It is a change in your thinking that is so radical. You have a new conviction about who Jesus is and who you are and what your greatest need is. It's a, it's a conviction in your thinking that is so radical it leads to new action and a new direction in your life. Oh, will you be perfect? No. But you begin to see life through a new lens and you have a new desire and a new power to help you get there. Your thinking has been changed so radically that the direction of your life has turned dramatically. Repent. Repent. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you were here today. I hope the Apostle Peter's sermon has brought some clarity as to who Jesus really is. What the gospel message is really about. 
and what it means to be a Christian. Oh, come to Christ. He's your only hope. Come to Christ. And if you're here and you're saying, but Brad, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. There's no way I qualify to ever be a Christian, then I wanna close by drawing your attention to Peter's incredible invitation that goes out to us today. Look at it in verse 39. For the promise, what promise? He's reaching back to Genesis where in Genesis three, as soon as sin wrecked this world, God promised to send a savior who would solve our sin problem. He says, this promise is to you and to your children. Oh, thank God for this next phrase. And to all who are afar off. I don't know what path you've been on that led you here, but you might think, oh, it's been a far off. It's been a far off. You qualify for salvation. But you must know for certain who Christ is, more than a good teacher. You must be cut personally by this truth that you're a sinner. And then you need to repent. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. God is calling, calling today. You, your children, and all, all who are far off. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your son who lived and died and rose again and is exalted to your right hand. Thank you for your spirit that now seeks to make much of your son and is drawing all people, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of economic status. Oh God, thank you for being such a gracious, merciful God. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.